You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hey, all you music lovers out there, this is Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and I am welcoming my amazing co-hosts, Rob Levy. Hello, fellow babies. And Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. And this week, we are turning the clocks way, way, way back, 50 years back, all the way to 1974. We're going to be talking about some of our favorite albums and a couple of significant things that happened in that amazing year. Some things that are celebrating 50th anniversaries this year. So I want to kind of set the stage for what's happening in 1974 in the musical landscape. We get our very first American Music Awards and the 16th annual Grammy Awards. And for interest, the big winners of the Grammys that year, Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder won yeah. Album of the Year. Killing Me Softly won both Record and Song of the Year. And Bette Midler was the best new artist. Huh. On March 30th, the Ramones play their very first concert. April 6th, ABBA wins the 19th Eurovision competition with their song Waterloo, and that sets their career for the ABBA that we know is coming with Mamma Mia and all those great things. Mama Cass passed away in her sleep of a heart attack at age 32 on July 29. Rock Around the Clock comes back into the top 40 after 20 years of its first release, because of Happy Days and American Graffiti. Neil Peart joins Rush, and that changes everything for Rush. George Harrison launches his Dark Horse tour, and he becomes the first Beatle to do a North American tour since the Beatles toured North America in 1966. Wow. And on December 31st, the last day of the year, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks join Fleetwood Mac. Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of great of stuff, year. man. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I forgot to mention, Cher files for divorce from Sonny. Oh. <laughs> I think I think seventy four is the year Van Halen debuted too, right? Um, they well, kind of. They had been playing okay. around for a while before the big turning point for Van Halen, and I don't remember what month it took place. They got their first gig playing at one of the big clubs on the Sunset Strip, and that's Gazaris. They eventually became sort of the house band for Gazaris, and they Gazaris is really what launched Van Halen's career. So they yes. played their first gig at that venue early in this year, but they had been playing around before that. All right, so let's talk about some of the things that we really loved from 1974. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting 
things about 1974 that go on. I mean, most notably uh, on the on the frightening side, it's the uh, anniversary year for Mandy by Barry Manilow and Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas. <laughs> Kung Fu Fighting was like, I think, the biggest single of the year. I mean, that th- I remember I was very young at the time, but I just remember hearing that thing everywhere <laughs> yes. in my in my like six year old brain, you know? Yeah, right. That record was absolutely just permeating everywhere. That's mm-hmm. right. I, I just want to all I want to say is ha. Oh my God, that's such a crazy song. You also sort of get the dawning of electronic music because you've got Kraftwerk and Eno doing some really interesting stuff that year. And we'll talk about Kraftwerk a little later. And then you've got, you know, the whole CBGB's thing has taken off mm-hmm. in New York. And this is the year that New York really sort of got grimy and really sort of kind of began its run as kind of like an indie music place, right? Because you've got Lou Reed making records, you've got the Ramones playing, you've got, you know, Bowie running around New York a little bit, and you've got the Stooges have broken up. So you've got Iggy, you know, and you kind of have this like fer- very fertile New York uh, scene coming out of like that sort of rough and ugly Yep. New York at the time. And it's a great year for soul music. I mean, you got Al Green, you've got Stevie Wonder, you've got Barry White making records. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really interesting year, like all these years we pick with a lot of different stuff going on. And I know Alan is super excited because it's a huge year for Prague. Oh boy, is it ever. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a warning and then you can like jump forward in the episode 10 minutes if you need to, to if you're not interested. We're prepared for the Prague report. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to start with a very mainstream artist, but we all love her so much, Linda Ronstadt, because this is the year that she really broke out with with a couple albums. The first one was released in January. It was Different Drum. The interesting part of this is that some of that record was recorded by the Stone Ponies, her, her first band. And the other half of that record is like recorded the year before. So it's kind of a mishmash. But some of my favorite songs on that album are uh, Rock Me on the Water, which is Jackson Brown's amazing song. And her version is just incredible. Different drum. Mike Nesmith wrote that. Yeah. Will You Love Me Tomorrow? Yeah, Goffin and King. So that that was just a great album. But that sort of set the stage because 10 months later in November, Heart Like a Wheel came out. And that was her fifth album, last album on Capitol, actually. But it was her first number one record in the United States. It was huge. You're No Good, When Will I Be Loved?, I mean, she actually won a Grammy for uh, I Can't Help It If I'm Still In Love With You, that she won a Grammy for the Best Country Vocal Performance, and the album was nominated for Album of the Year. So it was was a real breakthrough year for her. The second album from Big Star came out that year called Radio City. And, you know, I don't think anybody really got how important Big Star were until later i know yeah it's one of those albums that you go back to and like you can trace like everything from like the replacements to wilco to sort of like some contemporary yeah the bangles some contemporary americana too to like that record yeah it's one of those albums that just seemingly is nothing the people that knew about big star they knew and i think one of the people that knows about big star is probably your husband Steph. yeah i know i think him and i have talked about big star ad nauseum Mm -hmm. but like the big star records were really well done they were really well crafted and it's a band that sort of you just wish didn't fall apart mm-hmm. kind of like a precursor of uncle tupelo really kind of and sort of like wow if only they'd been together longer but that's their second album and um 
upon hindsight, it's great. I mean, I, I didn't really discover that record until the late 90s, early to the late 90s. I totally you know, no, same thing. I mean, it's like I didn't even really know about them. I was introduced to them by an ex-boyfriend, you know, I was just like, who is this, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's, if you listen to it now, it's like, oh, these kids are from Brooklyn. I'm like, no, this is from 1954. <laughs> and you can hear some of the guitar sounds of Big Star. Um, Steph, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You, you can hear some of that in the in, in the Bangles, and you hear some of it later in this band called the Aquanettas a little bit in some of their guitar work. Hmm. Um, so it, it, it's permeated really interestingly through, through through rock since it got released. Yeah. To continue, Graham Parsons. Grievous Angel. I was talking about another album, Grievous Angel, that was, again, like Rob with Big Star, you know how that was sort of not maybe looked upon as something so influential right then, right then at that moment. I kind of think Graham Parsons, the same thing happened with, with that album and with him, his whole legacy, really, because I think after he, his death, his, he became more and more ingrained into the um, culture of music and musicians. And he was really embraced just in a greater way as he's, as his legacy has grown. So um, that is the album that really also blew up Emmylou Harris too, because she was all over that album. Their, their song Love Hurts was, wow. I mean, how many people have covered that song since? I know I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, there yeah. you go. <laughs> and, and this album is so cool because it features like some of um, Elvis's TCB band, some other really great musicians in general, like Bernie Ledden and Linda Ronsat's on this one too. So it really had a great critical acclaim when it came out, but it really did not have that much commercial success. And I think later on was when people latched onto it. I'm going to throw in a couple of hard rock things that are happening this year because this is a this is another key year we have two huge debuts they were not huge at the time that they happened but they launched bands that became enormous and that is the first kiss album and the first rush album i'm not going to talk too much about those because i've got special episodes dedicated to those things coming <laughs> up later in the year but the first bad company album came out which is a, just a killer album um, with a lot of like radio, either big singles or radio classics, can't get enough, ready for your love, the 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 sort of theme song, Bad Company, moving on, just a fantastic record, and Aerosmith's second album, Get Your Wings, yeah, wasn't a huge, wasn't as big a, a splash as the first album was, and it didn't really have any singles that went much of anywhere, but man, it was a great record and really set the tone for almost everything that uh, Aerosmith did for the next 10 years. So um, Get Your Wings, man, it's a good album. I found as I was going through the Wikipedia page for 74, this was a year that seemed to set a lot of bands up. Like maybe it wasn't their, oh, yeah. um, you know, breakthrough. For a few it was, but so, but this was like, oh, this was the beginning of a lot of people's careers and they were just on the cusp of breaking through with like their next album. Yeah, absolutely. It was a kind of a turning mm -hmm. point for a number of bands like Jefferson Airplane went through this weird period where they weren't doing albums under the name Jefferson Airplane. They were just doing like anybody who walked in the door could be on the album, basically. And some of them were credited to Paul Kantner, some to Grace Slick. Grace Slick's first solo album, which was just one of the albums that came around in this whole 
process called manhole came out in January. But then later in that year, they finally sort of coalesced all this nebulous stuff that had been happening for the last few years. And the very first Jefferson starship album, dragonfly came out in September. And I mean, I'm not a big fan of the early Jefferson Starship stuff, but this has got a couple of key tracks on it. Ride the Tiger, a Paul Kantner song, became kind of a staple for their live shows for years and years and years. And in that early uh, Starship period, that was always their opening track. Mm -hmm. And then Hyperdrive, a Grace Slick song, which is this weird piano based is eight minutes. It's significant for me personally, because that's where I took the band name, a band that I was in for a long time back in like, I don't know, early two thousands or whatever. We were called hyperdrive. <laughs> we never played the song hyperdrive because it's piano based. It's really long. It's really slow. And that's three things that we did not do, <laughs> but I love the name and I took the name as our band name. And it's this great song about something about there being corners in time. And it's so, it's just a fascinating song. So yeah, it's definitely a, a turning point for a lot of things. Yeah. It's an interesting year. It really is. First Donna summer album talking about the emergence of disco. It was released only in the Netherlands. It was called Lady of the Night. It didn't have any hits on it or anything. It'd be a couple of years before she became what we think of as Donna mm-hmm. Summer. But, you yeah. know, that it's the first step. Yeah. Yeah. We also get, uh, we, we touched on this a little bit, but you also get Waterloo from ABBA, um, yeah. which is kind of, you know, when people talk about the catalog of ABBA, they think of the song Waterloo, but they kind of dismiss the album a little bit. But, you know, they had to come off of that huge wave of, uh, notoriety and make an album and uh they were under a lot of pressure to really make that work so and that's a record that just sort of got them like everywhere so by 1975 and 76 you know you can't escape abba at all right i'm going to talk about a a very kind of obscure artist although his son was not obscure um talking about tim buckley oh yeah this was his the year that he released his ninth and final album. And he was only 28 when he died. It's crazy to think that he had so so much, you know, so much of a catalog, but it's called Look at the Fool. And that's actually why I wanted to talk about it because that song, I, I heard that song somewhere maybe 10 years ago. I don't know. I don't even know where I heard it, but I was like, who is that? And he sounds just like Jeff Buckley. <laughs> I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, it's his dad. Because um, it was really <laughs> uncanny how much Jeff sounded like him. But uh, Tim went through a very like varied career in terms of his musical styles. And this was a weird kind of funky soul kind of album. And it was bizarre, I think. It was just, a, it's a really weird record and it's not all of it's great, but just that song, Look at the Fool, I love it so much. And it's got this amazing background vocals. And Mike Melvoin actually played organ, piano, and Moog on this album. Yeah. Melvoin, I bet he's related to Wendy. I bet he is. Ooh, I love her. <laughs> I bet love he's the dad. <laughs> Speaking of dad, so that's kind of weird, right? It's Tim and Mike yeah. and they, they're kids went on to great fame yeah true jonathan too mike's kid jonathan who unfortunately passed away but yes yeah sure did that's right yeah this uh if we were a full boat here this would be the robin anthony part of the show 
uh, because the sparks. sparks. Really, yep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> saw that. So I, I feel I feel the weight of having to you know do this on my own. But um, <laughs> Sparks released two albums. Yeah, uh, that year, um, Kimono My House and Propaganda, and um, both are fantastic. Kimono My House has sort of become classic because uh as they say the kids discovered it with the sort of resurgence of sparks after the documentary and stuff kimono is kind of the one that everybody sort of jumped to but like it's very ahead of its time really and just sort of how it sounds production wise and you know they are chameleons who change their their sound and their style and what they were doing a lot but this kind of finds them in a groove that year um that really sort of gets them going mm-hmm. um you know uh, they i still think at this point you know europe is much more radio friendly to sparks but they are definitely on the radar of like sort of the american underground definitely and you know those two records really were huge influences on loads of other bands later name any band with just two people in it and this record kimono my house pretty much influenced it and propaganda did as well too but you know they they both just bookend the year nicely for them and i think you sort of see them beginning to have this artistic run it lasts today but you know every band has these ups and downs we've been together that long but this is a high water year for sparks i think they like definitely influenced you know the whole the punk scene too for sure yes yeah, this record was huge for the LA punk scene. It was really big for the uh, CBGB crowd too. And it really, it was kind of weird because it was like, it's a record that like people that love pop could love. It was, it was, it's also very punk rock. Both of them are sort of very punk rock and that mm-hmm. they have this DIY sort of, we're doing this on our own terms attitude to, towards it. And a lot of the stuff you see with like Devo later or Talking Heads totally. is kind of birthed in this. And you know how much Jane, Jane from the Go-Go's loved them. Like that was a huge oh, yeah. influence on her. Yeah. I mean, this record is like everyone from Susie Quattro to the Go-Go's, you know, to the Ramones and Talking Heads. They love this record. Speaking of Susie Quattro. Uh, <laughs> yeah, see really. What see what I did there? And I think too, because Kimono My House was sort of become this almost mythical album. I think people sort of forget how great propaganda is too. They're sort of a yin and yang for that year. And it's, you know, this is a time in music history too, where bands are sometimes doing two albums in a year. We don't really get much of that anymore, right? But just the audacity of releasing two albums in a year is pretty tough. And then the audacity of doing two albums like that, which require a lot of studio time and creativity, creativity, (laughs) and just a lot of uh, drugs (laughs) and sweat, you know, um, sweat equity that went into both those records are are fantastic. So listen to sparks if you haven't yet. Yeah. And, and we did say Susie Quattro. Well, she did have her second album out in October Mm -hmm. of this year, just called Quattro. Um, I think this was bigger in the UK than it was here, though. I don't really think it did much, um, you know, in the United States. But she had a couple, like, a, a like number one, a number 14, and a number seven in the charts there, in the singles charts wow. in the UK from this album. So, but again, n- not much, not much US action, so. Yeah, yeah. She was always bigger overseas than she was here. Yeah, yeah. I'm not definitely. sure why. I'm not sure why she never really hit as much here as she did other places. I know. And then she got like really famous when she was on Happy Days. You know, I mean, that that was even something that just like busted her out, you know, in terms of her visibility, obviously, because it was such a huge show. But yeah. 
talking about two albums in a year, Kiss, their first two albums come out this year. The, the debut and the second album is Hotter Than Hell. And Queen, and I'm this is jumping a little ahead into the prog report, which we're going to get to later. But so I'm going to just steal from it for right now. Queen, Queen 2 comes out at the beginning of the year, and it is a, just a crazy album. Not a huge, like, success as far as charts and sales and stuff like that go but um really great with uh the whole second side written by freddie that um is basically this whole fantasy side that a lot of the songs segue into each other and stuff ogre battle nevermore the march of the black queen just amazing mm. amazing stuff and the last track on the album, Seven Seas of Rye, was the one that they were intended to be the single. And it is a great song. I don't know that it really did that much on radio, like, you know, because it's still a kind of a weird song. But then later in the year, the album Sheer Heart Attack comes out and it is the first big breakout success for Queen because of the single Killer Queen, which mm. was enormous. And but a lot of great stuff on there. Now I'm here is fantastic. Stone Cold Crazy is my one of my favorite. And it's one of the only songs written by all four members. Just a great rocker of a song. Fantastic album. So yeah, this is a year where a lot of bands are doing two albums in a year. And it's kind of crazy. But Kiss did that for like the first six or seven albums. They, they put two out every year. It's insane. I'm going to continue on that theme, although this isn't really the same because one is a proper studio album. The other is a greatest hits, but Elton John had two albums yeah. out this year. First one was Caribou, which was in, uh, released in June. This is his eighth studio album. And this is sort of like in the string of those, you know, like nine or so albums that he was just like on a roll, hot as hell. Yep. This Comparatively though, this wasn't the strongest album. I mean, he had two massive singles from it, The Bitch is Back, and of course, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Mm -hmm. My God, that was like, I mean, if you only had those songs on this, like that still is a massive success, I think. But, um, and he had really great guests on this album. I mean, just backups for like, Don't Go, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. He had like Dusty Springfield, Carl Wilson, the Captain and Tennille, you know. But a funny, I just have a funny quote to read from the producer, Gus Dudgeon. Um, Cause he later called this album quote, a piece of crap. He said, the sound is the worst. The songs are nowhere. The sleeve came out wrong. The lyrics weren't that good. The singing wasn't all there. The playing wasn't great. And the production <laughs> is just plain lousy. Now I'm That's sorry. Amazing. I disagree Gus because I like it. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, it's funny that he mentions the sleeve though, because that is the worst Elton John <laughs> album cover. It's there awful. is. It's so terrible. It's so tacky. It's it so awful. ridiculous. <laughs> but then in November comes great, Elton John's Greatest Hits, which by I just want to say this is the first album I ever owned. I was eight years old, and this was the first <laughs> album I went and bought with my own little allowance. So it spans his hits from 70 to 74. Um it was number one for 10 weeks in the US, number one for 11 weeks in the UK. It is the best selling album of 75, and it's still his best selling album in, uh, in the US, and one of the best selling albums of all time. I think there's like over 24 million sold. It's currently out of print, by the way. So if you have one like I do, hold yeah. on to it. Yeah, they've they've continued to release different greatest hits packages and, yes. and they've just reissued 
Diamonds, which is a greatest hits package from, I don't remember when, how far back it was, but they've just released a new edition of it with all of his recent big hits. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And, yeah. you know, speaking of, speaking of greatest hits albums, Alice Cooper, um, greatest hits album this year is also one of the first, one of the first albums that I ever bought the, uh, I'm pretty sure the first Alice Cooper album I ever owned was the Alice Cooper show, which was his first live album, which is amazing. And immediately after that got the greatest hits album. So it was one of the first, like <laughs> me going to a store and saying, I need this record, please. <laughs> that was, that was young me. Yeah. Starting my, you know, other than Kiss albums, starting my record buying. Yeah. Um. <laughs> cool. Uh, Stevie Wonder put out Fulfilling First, finally, his 17th album that year. It's sort of a forgotten Stevie Wonder record, but it's pretty fantastic, too. Speaking of people who did a lot of albums, I, I didn't put it on my list, but James Brown put out an album this year. And when I'm going through the albums that I want to highlight, I always look through the list and, and I look for things like for maybe bands that I'm not as familiar with that I'm like, okay, this one was a debut. That's important. This one was a second album. Maybe it was a, you know, an album that solidified a, a certain band or artist's reputation or something like that. This one was the final album by somebody. So I was coming across the James Brown one and I don't remember which one it is. And it was his 38th album oh my gosh that's so funny that is bananas i am going to mention steely dan's pretzel logic which mm, is their that's third, a good one yeah their third studio album i oh god i love that song any major dude will tell you that's yeah, just baby. one of my favorite of their songs so good but yeah, i yes. mean thinking about you were talking about before what what's that song that we just could not stop hearing um no, kung um, fu fighting kung fu yes. fighting yes okay yes. Kung fu fighting. well also we could not stop hearing ricky don't lose that number and that oh, was God. just one of the other things that was yeah. kind of like <laughs> pervasive um but it was this album was super critically acclaimed it did so well for them and just wanted to mention that talk about earworms here's a song that got played to death that year. And it's basically the only hit this band ever had pilot. And the album was called from the album of the same name and the single magic, which is the most important thing to ever happen to the company that produces the drug Ozempic. Ozempic. Oh, it's the, Oh, 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 oh it's, it's magic. Oh, okay. oh my God. I hate that fucking song. I know. That's so sad <laughs> that it was like appropriated for the drug. <laughs> Jesus. Why? Oh, because so somebody good. needs money. You know? I'm, <laughs> sure the, I'm sure the guys in pilot are going to appreciate that 19 cents from Spotify they get every year. No shit. Oh, oh my, my gosh. God. I'm going to do a, let me do a couple of rock classics. First of all, Mr. Bowie has a big year in 74. He's doing a lot of stuff, but the album diamond dogs comes out, which is a huge record because the previous year he basically you know, he's doing his Ziggy Stardust tour, which kind of carries on from the Ziggy album into the Aladdin Sane album. It's just basically one big tour. And at the end of that, he's like, you know, basically resigns from touring. Now, what he meant was the Ziggy character he was putting to death. So Diamond Dogs comes around and it's just a phenomenal record and one of the absolute key Bowie albums there is. And just a few days ago, I got asked to 
come back into the Bowie tribute band that I used to play in. So Diamond, the title song, Diamond Dogs, is one of my favorite Bowie songs to play. It's so phenomenal. Other than that, I got to highlight Fleetwood Mac because talk about Mm -hmm. transitional albums. Heroes Are Hard to Find is the last album from that period where the band is being led by Bob Welch. Now, um, prior to this, we also had my favorite Fleetwood Mac guy, Danny Kerwin in the band. And he kind of left, he went nuts and left the band and, you know, as always happens with Fleetwood Mac members. And so (laughs) this album, Heroes Are Hard to Find, is led wholly by Chris McVie and Bob Welch. So basically it's 10 tracks evenly divided between the two of them. And we get some really great material from both of them. The title track is a Christine song, but my favorite Christine McVie song ever written and recorded. I don't care from her solo albums. I don't care from any period of Fleetwood Mac. The song Come a Little Bit Closer is my absolute favorite Christine song ever. It just blows me away every single time I hear it. It just has this epic, like almost filmic feel to it. It feels like a soundtrack song and it's just incredible. And it's like we said, you know, this is when Bob Welch is leaving the band and Heroes comes out in um, September and that's when they start looking for replacements for Bob and they meet Lindsay and Stevie. And the first time they meet it, you know, they only wanted Lindsay because they only needed a guitar player. They just needed somebody to replace Bob Welch. Right. And they already had a girl singer in the band. They didn't necessarily want a second one, but Lindsay was like, nope, sorry, we're a package. Package deal. We come, we come as a package deal. And they said, well, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll have a meeting and we'll just meet at a restaurant and it'll be up to Christine. If she is okay with the new girl, then we'll, we'll go ahead. And they met and Christine and Stevie hit it off immediately and became best friends. And that was, that's what sealed the deal. So by December 31st, they become official members of Fleetwood Mac. And that, again, like we said earlier, changes everything for them. Oh, totally. For your other classic album, were you going to maybe mention Walls and Bridges by John Lennon by any chance? You you go right ahead. I did have it on my list, but I'm happy for you to take that one. Okay. Or we could just all talk about it. We could share. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I just have it because it's like, I think this is maybe... His first number one on the Billboard charts as a solo artist. Is it possibly with whatever gets you through the night? I'm not sure. I know that it went number one, but, and it also features Elton John on, on piano and backups on this. Oh, it is. It is. I have it written down. It's his first uh, number one U.S. solo. Um, Number nine dream is on this, which has so many amazing players. Yeah. Like Jim Keltner's on it. Nikki Hopkins, Harry Nilsson, Elton John, and also, um, Julian plays drums on Yaya on the album. Do oh, you yeah. know that? Yeah. But um, so yeah, cool. this is like a, you know, released during his famous Lost Weekend kind of thing with yeah. May Pang. Um, yeah, yeah. And I love the story, of course, that that Elton John bet him, bet John Lennon, that if the song, if, if whatever gets you through the night top the charts that um john lennon would have to perform live with Mm -hmm. elton john and of course it did go number one and that is you know the famous madison square garden performance we also get and we've talked about this a little bit but we should just fully jump into craft work 
right? Yeah, sure. Um, so Audubon comes out. Oh my in 1974. gosh, so good! It's huge, absolutely huge in, in Europe, right? Much like the Sparks album, it kind of doesn't do much here because there's not really a radio sa- track on it. You know, the first side is all one song and it's 22 minutes, right? You know, <laughs> and then the other songs are like part one, part two. You know, it's all it's a very weird idea for like American pop music consumers. But you are seeing Kraftwerk kind of make the transition from kraut rock to like electronic rock. And that's a huge point in, in music at this point. But this is their their fourth album, and it sort of really launches them into a different stratosphere because oddly enough, you know, like some other bands, you know, and people always think that punk is this very sort of finite little box, but this record breaks through with, you know, people listen to punk. This breaks through with people that listen to soul and R&B. Mm-hmm, totally. Um, this record was going to be absolutely huge in what happened with soul and disco music in the next 10 years. Um, it sets the groundwork for, you know, contemporary electronic music. And in England, it sort of really takes off. You know, you sort of see it become a fan of people that love like the Radiophonic Workshop or more contemporary electronic stuff going on in Britain at the time. They sort of adopt it. Bowie loves it. Oh, yeah. It's sort of picked up by, you know, Bowie, Lou Reed, and, and, and Iggy. Once those three are on board, then the rest of the world's sort of on board. And it's just kind of like... Sparks in 1974 were weird, but man, Kraftwerk was really like, what is this? Yeah, you didn't, no one ever heard anything like it, really. This is kind of like, you know, I've explained to the kids now that like, you know, remember the first time you heard Daft Punk and just how weird that was? That is what listening to Audubon was in 1974. You're like, okay, this is the dawn of something completely new and it still holds up. It is still a fantastic body of work and it's also an album that kind of starts to make people look at production in different ways i mean you have this of course with the beatles and elton john and a lot of people make and bowie and people making records at this time that are individual artists they're looking at production already and using the studio but this sort of changes the entire game because now it gives them a whole new tool the synthesizer and computers and how can they do that everybody knew the computers and music was coming eventually. And this is sort of the dawn of that. It is the Citizen Kane of electronic music, kind of. You know, it's not really understood at its time, but the people that got it were like, man, this is fantastic. It, a lot of the production techniques are used today. It's just fantastic. So many of these records in 74, this is kind of like a, a, um, a trend, is I think 74 was really dismissed musically by a lot of people until the late 80s and early 90s when you know you hear things like flock of seagulls coming sort of this resurgence of like glam a little bit like a lot of these records are really getting revisited decades later and this is certainly one of them i think rich our friend richard evans talks about a lot about this in our oh yeah his book listening to the oh my gosh please tell me the title listening to the music the machines make i was gonna just butcher that too sorry Soon, soon to be coming out in paperback Yay! Um, but um, yeah, and I think that its influence in England is way more prevalent than in America, but it's coming. Everybody knows something's coming. They just don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, I think this is this is kind of a connection. Craftwork to Georgia Marauder to Donna Summer to Disco to everything else after. Right. There's kind of a lineage there with mm-hmm. that record. Mm-hmm. So. Right. 
before Alan gives the prog report, can I give the <laughs> can I give the bubblegum report? Oh yes, we need the bubblegum report. <laughs> it's literally just two things, but <laughs> but they're glorious. <laughs> they're glorious. Donnie and Marie, this is their debut album together. I'm leaving it all up to you. That's why I'm leaving it all up to you. <laughs> it's nice. a great song, a great pop song, and it reached number four on the pop charts. Come on. I think Marie was like 16 or something, not even maybe. And also Morning Side of the Mountain was on that. That's a really weird kind of crazy, silly song, which also reached respectable number eight on the charts. Then we have the Bay City Rollers coming out with Saturday Night. The original version of Saturday Night was actually released in 73, but didn't hit the charts at that point. So the original was re-sung by uh, Les McCowan. I believe that's how you say his mm -hmm. last name, because of course I knew them as like Woody and like their, you know, the first names when I was like eight years old and obsessed with them. But um <laughs> Then it became a number one hit in January of 76. I mean, the album came out in, you know, 74. At the end of 75, Saturday Night was released as a single, and then it became a huge hit in 76. But yeah, that's the bubblegum report for 74. Thank you for doing important research <laughs> for this topic. Yeah. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah. All right. Well, in the famous words of Anthony, let's do a musical 180. <laughs> let's just let's just do the prog report because holy it. smokes is there a lot of stuff to cover now we've got the two queen albums out of the way so we can discard mm -hmm. that for the moment we have albums by camel their second album mirage which is phenomenal kansas talk about debut albums man the the homegrown american prog band kansas right there from wheatland N didn't make a big splash it'd be a couple of years before that would happen but that that first album is super important the debut album by rush which is basically it's not that proggy it's basically led zeppelin inspired and with their original drummer john rutsey and um, it's very heavy, it's very straightforward rock, but with some really cool twists in it. And it's it's certainly not the height of what Rush would ever achieve, but it's a fun album. I really love it. We get two phenomenal records from King Crimson. These are both albums that are keystone albums in their career, Starless and Bible Black and Red, incredible albums. I don't know how many people are familiar with Renaissance. They're basically like yes. a prog band that grew out of the Ren the Renaissance festival scene. And I absolutely love them. And their album, Turn of the Cards, comes out in 74. And it is incredible with some of my favorite Renaissance uh, songs on it. Running Hard, Black Flame, Mother Russia, Things I Don't Understand. Incredible record. They are so good. Hawkwind puts out Hall of the Mountain Grill, which is a great album. Sticks, their fourth album, Man of Miracles, which is the last record they do on the record label that they were signed to, Wooden Nickel, which was a smaller kind of indie label. And they're just about to get signed to A&M, which is going to change everything for them. But the two biggies that I want to get to, and these are mountainous. These are epic, enormous releases. The first one, November 22nd, Genesis 
the last album that they record with Peter Gabriel, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Oh, God, yeah. Just an insane record. It's a double album. It's a concept album from start to finish. It tells this story of this guy who basically goes into the underworld and encounters all these bizarre creatures and stuff. And it is just an insane album. It is unbelievably it's so good and they would perform the album and they started the tour before the album came out and they would play the entire album on tour wow. so the first shows they're doing like it's 90 minutes of stuff that nobody <laughs> in the audience had ever heard before <laughs> and ballsy. it's just crazy because peter gabriel is doing costume changes and he's dressing up like the monsters that the main character encounters and all this kind of stuff and holy cow is it just crazy but the next one the last one I'm going to talk about, November 29. So one week after Lamb Lies Down on Broadway comes out, Relayer by Yes, which is my favorite Yes album. It is musically, compositionally, as far as a performance goes, the most complex album. One of the most. There, there's two that could take that, that crown, but I think this is the most complex arrangements that they wrote for any of their music. And it's basically three songs. The first side is a 22-minute song called The Gates of Delirium, which is loosely based on War and Peace. And John Anderson, who is this sort of airy-fairy kind of love is the spirit that moves the world kind of thing, writes this song based on war and peace where he's writing the darkest stuff he's ever written lines like burn their children's laughter to hell and all this kind of stuff and it's just crazy stuff from them but then at the end it resolves into typical john light and love will heal the world kind of stuff and it is just amazing the whole album three songs the other side two has two 10 minute songs i mean not commercial in any way, but it was a, a huge record for them. The only one with keyboard player Patrick uh, Moraz, and it really changed. He has such a huge impact on the band and it changes their sound so drastically. And it's sadly the only album he did um, before Rick Wakeman comes back into the band after having quit after the previous record, which he did not enjoy. Um, but yeah, so that was my prog report for 1974. Four, 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 four. Right. That was a great prog report. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. A lot of stuff happened in the 74. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's also, you could do a prog report. You could also do a glam report, really. I was thinking the same out, thing. Yeah. T-Rex T Rex put out a record, which we haven't really talked about. Right. Um, Bowie's very busy. And then we've got uh, Roxy Music with their fourth album, Country Life, that by, by weird happenstance, John Wetton plays on. Mm, um, nice. Yeah. So tying that all together. And that is probably one of the records that, I mean, I think it's, a lot of people think it's their best record. It's the one that sort of mm -hmm. finds them sort of firing on all cylinders kind of a thing. And it's a little little heavier than some of the other stuff they've been doing up to that. But it's fantastic, right? Like All I Want Is You is on it. And there's a couple other things on there as well. And it really sort of, it does two things. It sort of cements Roxy Music as like a band that's not just a passing fad that's had like three albums were done, blah, blah, blah. It shows that they can weather being in a band uh, without Eno. It kind of cements like, okay, we don't need Eno. And it also, oddly enough, kind of puts the notion of being a solo artist in the head of Brian Brian Ferry, who he has an album as well, right? Another time, another another place, I think, in 1974. So Ferry kind of is, is again like, hey, you know, He's done solo work before this, but he's this is sort of the beginning of the end of Roxy Music, but it's also the beginning of them just being a really 
bigger, bigger band as well. So it's an interesting contrast uh, for Roxy Music. And you also get, uh, we haven't really talked much about live albums, talk about people on tour and things, but Lou Reed's uh, Rock and Roll Animal mm. is just a beast in terms of live records. You know, if you sort of want to know what a live album sounds like in 74, there's that on the live Bowie record. That's all you really need to really kind of understand the the grimy under undercore of 1974. Um, yeah. The the David Live album is is really interesting because you can hear in real time the transition that he's going through, leaving behind that glam sound and moving into what becomes the blue-eyed soul sound when he comes into the next album, which is Young Americans. Yeah. yeah. And the band that he puts together on David Live really has that sound and they change the arrangements of some of the existing songs to make them sound yeah. more soul. And it's a fascinating record. Yeah. And then sort of piggybacking off of that, you get Taking Tiger Mountain, the second Brian Eno album, which is still fantastic today too. It's also one of these albums that sort of is sort of seminal now. People listen to it now and, and they love it. But at the time it's like, man, this is weird. It's, it, it is a happy happenstance that you get Kraftwerk and Eno making sort of these odd records this year. And Eno is interesting because it's a bridge record of so many sounds in so many places. And Taking Tiger Mountain is uh, certainly, again, an album I've revisited since it came out a large number of times. And I think it's probably the last 10 or 12 years or so ago is when I really started getting into this album. The more I hear it now, the more I love it as well. So this is one of my big favorites of 74. Did you mention Slade in terms of glam? Oh, true. Slade. Right? I did not. I'm just yeah. going to let somebody else handle that. But yes, yeah, Slade was all over the place too. Yeah, yeah. And I actually think, you know, Susie Quattro fits into the glam thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely. De definitely. Yeah. I want to, I want to wrap up by just mentioning three quick things, a couple of soul albums that are Great. enormous. And that is Jackson five with dancing machine. I don't know many of the songs. I don't have the album. I don't know many of the songs on it, but the single, the, the title track dancing machine was, is my favorite Jackson five song. Oh, it wow. is so good. And then I don't know if I've ever mentioned on this show, how much I worship at the feet of Patti LaBelle. I yes, just think she, that. I just, I just think she is the most amazing vocalist to ever walk the planet. All deference to Aretha Franklin, but mm -hmm. Patti LaBelle takes it for me. And LaBelle puts out their, their album Nightbirds, which they only released one single from that album. Mm -hmm. And fortunately it was Lady Marmalade, which was, <laughs> yeah. which was enormous. And then I just want to throw one other one in really quickly. And that is on the countryside. And that is Dolly Parton. Yes. The album Jolene, which has the song Jolene, of course, and the song I Will Always Love You. The two most, I mean, the biggest Dolly Parton singles ever released. I honestly think that Jolene is one of the greatest songs ever written. Yes. I just, oh my God, I love that song so much. To the point where a year or so ago at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, when she was inducted, and she's like, well, I'm going to have to earn my keep here. I'm going to have to do a rock and roll album. And she went out and did an album called mm -hmm. Rockstar. But, you know, the, the Rock Hall always closes out their their show, their um, induction show with a big jam with everybody on stage. And that year they picked Jolene wow. and they have Dolly on stage with the Arrhythmics and Pat Benatar and Brandy Carlisle and fucking Judas Priest, for God's sake. That's right. That's right. I do. And they're all that. singing. Yeah. They're all trading off vocals on Jolene. And it was, it was just an amazing thing to witness. So I just think that, I mean, any year that includes Jolene and I will always love you. Yeah. Oh my God, that's a that's a key year. 
you know, you've also got a Funkadelic record that year. You've got yes. Al Green. You've got a lot of stuff. Well, going you get on. you get Parliament and Funkadelic. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah, yeah that's some should, good we, stuff. If we had more time, we could sort yeah. of delve into like the 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 rise of funk. Oh my gosh. In this year as well too, because it's it's starting to take off. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to cut it. So we are going to take a break. We'll be right back to close out our show. Don't go anywhere. Attention, people of Earth. Looking for a way to kill half an hour every week? Try the Flopcast. It's a silly podcast about cartoons, music, comics, movies, obscure pop culture from the 70s and 80s, and chickens. Join us. Bring coffee. We're on the ESO network. And we're at Flopcast.net. All right, and we're back. Well, we're going to kick off our last segment of the show with a listener question. And this is one of the five questions that our regular listener, Jessica in Florida sent to us. And she is curious to know what our favorite musical moment in film was this past year, 2023. And I can safely say that I don't have an answer for this because I don't think I saw that many movies this past year. And I don't remember any other than the one that Stephanie's going to talk about. I don't really remember anything that stands out. So I will pass on this one. (laughs) And (laughs) she'll be so disappointed in me. Well, my favorite is definitely in the Barbie movie when they used Closer to Fine. Yeah. Whoever thought of this idea is a genius I mean, if it was Greta, it probably was Greta, but... I'm sure. Uh, yeah. It, it, there could not have been any more hilarious moments when they were dri- when she was driving in that car singing. And then, of course, then when America Ferraro was in the car with her and they both sort of started singing. But the best part was when the daughter was with them both and Margot and America were in the car singing and the daughter just all of a sudden blurts out from the back like what the fuck is this song? Like, it's just, <laughs> it was just such a great moment because it just shows like how, you know, it was just a great generation gap kind of thing. And just like the music of today and the music of that was so popular and mm-hmm. so meaningful to us when we were, you know, younger. It was fantastic. <laughs> and plus it was just so clever of, uh, of you know, in the scenes anyway. It was just fantastic. Right. Rob, what stuck out to you musically in film this past year? Uh, so two things. One, um, the score for Oppenheimer is just mm. fantastic as a musical score. But um, spoilers, when they uh, detonate the big prototype to the atomic bomb and they have this big thunderous wave of, of, of music in the, in, in the film, um, that's fantastic. I just thought that was you really used a great effect uh, in the movie. They really <laughs> used the orchestral score for that really well. And then also the uh, new film that's out now, All of Us Strangers. Um, which is set, I think, in 87 or 88, um, features uh, a very great slow B-side version of the Pet Shop Boys cover of Elvis is Always on My Mind. It's kind of orchestral mm-hmm. and slow, and it's fantastically used uh, Used there. That's interesting. So, cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to be back next week. And 
you know, I don't know if y'all remember, I'm sure you remember last year. So in a couple of months, you know, we just finished 1974. In a couple of months, we're going to have to talk about another one of these anniversary years. And if you remember last year, we divided 1983 up into two shows because there's so much to talk about. Yeah, We might have to make 1984 a three-parter. Okay. You talk about, and I'm, I'm being silly, but that would be too much, but that is, <laughs> that is a huge year yeah. as big as 83 was 84 is just insane yeah so it is gonna we, we just might have to do two two hour shows who knows <laughs> all right so how about we tell people where they might find more of us stephanie where might people find more of your beautiful voice oh thank you well you can find me on facebook at stephanie seymour music you can find me on instagram at there underscore r underscore birds and i also have a website there are birds.com uh you can find me on bandcamp under my name and um on all the streaming platforms like spotify and stuff like that that is beautiful robo so you can find me on the weekend justice podcast with neatcoffee.com uh, also on Wednesdays on KDHX in St. Louis from 7 till 9 Central, uh, I host a radio show called Juxtaposition. Uh, you can tune in then, unless, of course, you have to feed the finches, uh, at which point you can listen to it later on the archive stream uh, at kdhx.org. But that's every week. And then Mondays, Mondays are going to be the new fun days. Because Mondays um, from um, 6 to 8 Greenwich time, and 12 to 2 Central, 1 to 3 Eastern is when I have a show on Louder Than War Radio uh, called Antics. You can listen to that and enjoy it and um, listen to That To Your Heart's Content. You can also stream that later on their Mixcloud. As of this recording, um, I have just finished show 43. Wow. So uh, you have 43 instances of uh me failing to bring you good music to your ears um you can listen to those and uh cry in sadness uh also what uh, coming about? from well you know i i play a lot of weird records you do play um, weird records but that doesn't mean they're not good exactly. so uh also mondays uh from five to seven eastern time oh no six to eight eastern time five to seven central uh, on the face radio in Brooklyn, I have a show called free design that's starting sometime in, in February. And that also is going to be a little more diverse. I'm going to place a little more, uh, world music and some jazz and some older stuff from the twenties and thirties. It's just going to be bedlam and chaos. All right. So I, I would appreciate it if you went to my website, which is cosmiccreative.com and check out all of my podcasts, which includes Dr. Who A to Z yeah. and earth station Trek. And go check out some of my books. I have a new one that will be out hopefully next month. Oh my so, gosh. I know, right? Woohoo. How exciting. I'm telling you. All right. So, everybody, have a great week. We will see you next week. Take care and keep rocking on. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com.
The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.